She's published a number of books, best known as The Caged Virgin, uh, Infidel, which probably made her famous, uh, Nomad, and the latest one, Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Ref Reformation Now, which of course we're discussing tonight. She founded and is president of the AHA Foundation, a non-profit humanitarian organisation to protect women and girls against political Islam and harmful tribal customs that violate US laws, but also every other darn law. Uh, through the AHA Foundation, she campaigns against the denial of education for girls, female genital mutilation, forced marriage, honour violence and killings, and the suppression of information, and this is a really critical point, about the crimes through, through the misuse and misinterpretation of rights of freedom of religion and free speech in the US and elsewhere. Please welcome Ayn Hirsi Ali. <laughs> Greg, thank you very, very much. Um, I mean, I don't think I feel anywhere more at home than at CIS and with Greg and Jenny and uh, Nicola Forrest and husband Twiggy, who's not here. Um, uh, thank you very, very much for having me. If we were not on such a tight schedule, I think I would have told you more anecdotes and joked around and we would have had a little bit more fun. Um, than I can permit myself to have tonight. I was in Melbourne for the Bonython lecture, and I really have to say to you that I, I knew I came here with a schedule and I was going to give this interview and that interview, but when two or three or four people uh, stood behind the mic and started to ask me questions about, and we wish you good luck with Q&A, <laughs> <laughs> I started to get nervous. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what I'm going to do after this session. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very nervous, but they talked to me and they said they were not going to trip me and they were not going to ask me about Australian politics. Um, they also promised not to ask me about US politics. Um, so I, t I take that, uh, or, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll test it. We'll see, how, we'll, we'll see about ABC integrity there. So the latest book, Heretic, the title says it all, doesn't it? If you're born into the house of Islam and you get to start to think independently and critically, um, members of your family will start using language like heretic. Um, they'll say, as they said to me, uh, please stop this line of thinking. It is going to get you into trouble. Now, at the moment, I was about 15 or 16 and I was getting myself immersed voluntarily in my religion. And the sort of question, I, type of questions I was asking was, well, if, why if I'm a woman do I have to submit completely to the man if he can't submit to me? And why if Allah is just, I don't know how much you're familiar with the Quran, it starts with, in the name of Allah. Every chapter starts, except one. Every chapter starts with, in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful. And I was asking myself, so where is all the grace and all the mercy if one half of humanity has to completely submit to the other half of humanity? And instead of getting what you get in the West, at least what I think you would get in the West. Universities have completely changed now. 
but in the 1990s, when I was in the Netherlands and I was studying and I would pose such questions, my professors welcomed such questions. But instead of that being welcomed, I was told that my head was being invaded by Satan. So to ask such questions was to be in the grip of Satan, in the grip, in the grip of evil. And I, ladies and gentlemen, can't tell you there is nothing more intimidating than to be told by the people you trust, your parents, your teachers, your peers, that you are in the grip of Satan. And you're asking questions that in the West are just so I mean, bland, equality of men and women. Um, why, if Allah is merciful, why does he want all this blood? Why does he want jihad? Why do, why do you want to satisfy God in this way? So the title says it all. And as I embarked on this book, this started in 2011, 2012, 2013, I have to ask myself the question, and at that point, I am no longer a Muslim. I'm not in the least intimidated by such notions as Satan and life after death and all that. In 2010, I had written a book called Nomad, and Nomad advised all Muslims wisely, if they were good people, to step away from Islam, if they were religious, to adopt Christianity. Because the Christianity that I found in the Netherlands and the rest of Europe and the United States of America was so benign. God was described as love. And there was no hereafter. And if there was a hereafter, we would all go to heaven. So there was no, in the Christianity that I found in Europe, there was no punishment or retribution. There was only redemption. So if you're a good person and you want to be religious, you want to believe in the supernatural, at 2010, I was saying to Muslims, you know, get on with it, just become a Christian, go to Jesus, and you can't harm with that belief system, you can't harm anyone, and maybe you will get the benefit that you are seeking. And then fast forward, this whole Arab Spring happens, but not only that, I obviously evolve and understand that such things as 1,400-year-old traditions are not just shed uh, after one conversation or after one book or after a few encounters or after you've crossed an ocean, that these things take a very, very long time. And so from a conceptual perspective, at that point, I'm not a politician. I'm with the American Enterprise Institute. I meet my husband, and we're now moving to Harvard. And so you have to, as a matter of, I would say, rigorous thinking, allow for a possibility where all these masses and masses of people, individuals, human beings endowed with reason, may just be in a position where they do not want to give up their faith and their tradition and their sense of belonging and identity, but that they might want to move on. And I start reading. And as I read, and at that point, this is 2012, I'm teaching at Harvard political theory in Islam. I, have, I had approached Islam, 
not only as a faith, as a religion, but also as a political philosophy from 9-11 of 2001. And it was plain to me that the political dimension of Islam was much, much more important, more profound and more influential than its religious dimension all this time. But as I'm teaching it, I'm then forced to make these parallel comparisons with Christianity, all the similarities and all the differences. So over and over again comes the question, can Islam be reformed? Not in the sense that Christianity, that Luther went back to the original text and decried the church because the church had corrupted the New Testament, but can it be reformed in the sense that it can be modified, it can be updated so that it meets needs, spiritual needs, political needs, whatever needs of believers in the 21st century. And I'm in a position in 2012-2013 that I wasn't in 2001-2002. In 2012-2013, I have friends, Muslim friends, and I'm corresponding with them, I meet with them, I talk to them. And I've had the opportunity to ask them, why do you remain in this awful faith? And they are in an opportunity to pose to me the question, why are you so horrible and so selfish as to turn your back to your parents and your faith and your tradition and your identity? And slowly, some of us are really coming together. And I think, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. But in these intimate conversations between myself and some of those Muslim friends who still want to be my friends, other bigger things are happening. The Arab Spring is unfolding. And as it unfolds, I'd like to take you back to the time when at first Tunisia and Egypt, these are, it's, the whole thing started in Tunisia and then later in Egypt. And you must have read all the reports and they're very socio-economic centered. It's all about economics, if you want to believe the Western reporter, except a few of them. And they show us that people who hate Mubarak and are united, for instance, by their hatred for the dictator of the day, they go to the square, they protest, they have no program for tomorrow and the day after and the days after. And a movement like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt creeps in. And at first, the Muslim Brotherhood says, in Egypt, we're not going to run for office. But as they see things turn their way in the sense that really, they are the only ones who are organized they do start to run for office. And they're elected into office. And what a lot of people, I don't know about Australians, but at that point I'm surrounded by Americans. What a lot of my fellow Americans do not understand is that the definition of democracy cannot simply be narrowed down to an election. That is a rule of the mob. And at that point, there are no institutions, no checks and balances to stop anyone who wins a majority from doing anything. 
In any case, Mohamed Morsi comes to power. The Muslim Brotherhood is elected in the first election process. I don't want to call it a democracy. First election process in Egypt. He is in office for a year. But behind him are these people, mainly young people, who are Muslim, but who do not want Sharia law. And because they are locals and intimately familiar with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood agenda, they understand that the man now in office, and in fact the ideology in office, because it is way more than a man, is going to introduce Sharia law, Islamic law. And women, the women of Egypt understand what it will mean for them once Islamic law is in place. And the Coptic Christians, the minority, understand that. And the tourist industry understand that. They happen to sell alcohol and beaches and places where men and women intermingle. So there are all these segments within the Egyptian population that do not want Sharia law, but whether they are Muslim or not, respect Islam and respect Muslims. And that obviously forces me into a place where I think, okay, as I'm writing this book, and every time something bad is happening, I open the book with the Charlie Hebdo attacks, but I keep updating that because before that, there's an attack and there was an attack and there was an attack. And I don't want it to be just about that attack, because those attacks are about jihad. And jihad, a holy war against the infidel, is only one component of what it is that I'm trying to fight. But as I'm watching this, and I'm also reflecting on Iran, Iran, Islamic Republic of Iran, the biggest schizophrenia of our time, because the people of Iran have now lived with Sharia law since 1979, also an Ayatollah Khomeini who came to power through such an election, please don't call it a democracy, and don't think of it as a democracy. But there was this moment of crowd madness that gave Ayatollah Khomeini power, and they've been subjected to what that means, Islamic law. And millions of Iranians don't want that. So I reflect on that. I reflect on what is going on, the struggle in Tunisia. And I have to ask myself then, is it possible Theoretically, we're not talking about practically, but theoretically, and in conversation with my Muslim friends, to actually reform Islam. And if you are to reform Islam, then what would you change? But before you answer that question, you have to ask yourself how to deal with Islamic diversity, that is Muslim diversity. So conceptually, behind your desk, very safe, on paper. You make a separation between Muslims as adherents and appreciate that diversity. Sometimes we are told there are 1.4, 1.5, or 1.6 billion people and that cover many continents, languages, etc. But then you have Islam as a doctrine. Part of it is a civilization that's been around for 1,400 years old. It has religious components, ibadat, worship, but it also has political components, mu'amalat, 
I'm not going to bore you with the Arabic terms. But as I digest that, I think, well, the first thing, of course, is would it be acceptable to Muslims to separate religion from politics? Now, think deeply about that question. Because when you say, would it be acceptable to Muslims to separate religion from politics, you're then going to be forced to ask yourself, which Muslims? And when you look at any data, you're going to find that there are Muslims who explicitly do not want to separate politics from religion. And those Muslims who refuse to do that, who say that it's blasphemic to do that, it's heretical to do that, they are the ones who invoke the Quran in its Medina rendition. I'll come back to a minute. They invoke the Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, Every single time they reference him, it's about Medina. And they use a term called abrogation. If you are a true follower of Islam, they say, you will do what the Prophet Muhammad did and suggested that you do and ordered that you do when he was in Medina and beyond. And everything he did in Mecca and prior, you, may, you mustn't do that. That's been abrogated. That was just the foundation. So Medina Muslims, individuals who invoke that, they may use violence. They may not use violence. In fact, I think the ones who use violence are easy to isolate. The United States of America has been chasing Al-Qaeda since 9-11-2001 and is now after ISIS, the Islamic State of Syria and Iraq. Uh, they've been after Al-Shabaab in my country of birth. Uh, are local. Jihadists are called Al-Shabaab. You may be familiar in next door Indonesia with the jihadists at home in Pakistan, everywhere else. The Medina Muslims, those Muslims who invoke Medina and apply jihad are the easy ones to go after. The hard ones to go after that pose a dilemma for liberal societies are those who actually do not use violence. They're the ones who apply dawah. And dawah is this umbrella term. It can be a persuasion. Will you please convert to Islam and leave you if you say no? Or distribute pamphlets, go online, or use other means. For instance, immigration to settle, because the Prophet Muhammad did that. He settled in Medina to impose Islam. And one individual in a position of power who is actually applying this is the president of Turkey. Using emigration, using human beings as a tool to settle and dominate and spread Islam. And in the history of the spread of Islam, this has been used. So these are Medina Muslims. So Medina Muslims can be Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, bin Laden, who was killed, but it can also be the current president of Turkey. It could also be these five young men in Melbourne who thought they could drive for thousands of kilometers and go in a little dinghy to 
Indonesia and, and then join ISIS. What they share in common is a worldview. Now, if you, if, if, if you move away from that individual, non-governmental movement or organization, or head of state, head of states, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, a head of states who are determined to promote Sharia, Islamic law, you have Medina Muslims. But move away from the Medina Muslims and go to the modifiers, the individuals who were raised in Muslim households, in Muslim communities and Muslim societies, who completely and utterly disagree with them, but who do not have the doctrinal backing. They don't have a coherent doctrinal backing. If you are a modifying Muslim, what happens to you, it's happened to me, is that you are going to be forced to disagree intellectually, conceptually, cognitively with Muhammad. How can you? How can you be a believer and disagree with the Prophet Muhammad? Because to believe is to accept and to completely submit. You're going to find yourself disagreeing with the Quran and parts of the Quran that violate your conscience. How can you do that? These are the modifying Muslims. These are the individuals with whom I communicate. And then there's a large group, perhaps the largest, I honestly can't tell you that. In, if you read my book, Heretic, I'll say they are the largest. Why do I say that? Because I think it's quite obvious if everybody was a Medina Muslim, the world would be in a much, much, much worse place, wouldn't it be? And as we know, not only from the political philosophy of Islam, but all other political philosophies, people may have an attitude where they sort of passively say yes to things, but in their daily lives, they have to feed their children, they have to feed themselves, they have to attend to all the daily chores and they don't have anything else to do. Now, those individuals, when they're asked about, but how can I trust you? Are you a Muslim that is my neighbor, my classmate, my doctor, goodness knows what? H how do I know you don't mean harm? Those Muslims will always say, Islam is perfect, the Quran is perfect, Muhammad is perfect. But they will, when, you, when they make quotes, and you've got to listen carefully to their quotes, they will quote Muhammad in his Mecca period, and the Quran in the Mecca period. They will say, unto you your religion, and unto me my religion. They will not say that that was abrogated. That's what the Medina Muslims will say. I think that classification of Muslims into those who are explicitly Medina-oriented, and those modifiers who really have trouble with the Quran and the Muhammad. And then this large swathe of people whose we can't definitely look into their minds, but who keep invoking Muhammad if they do in Mecca, that that is a more useful classification in our time than the terms moderate versus extreme, or moderate versus radical, fundamentalist, whatever it is that we Westerners have labeled them. Because what does moderate tell you? Moderate in what? Moderate jihad? Now, the second component of the book is 
is, is an outcome of my conversations with the modifying Muslims, and they frustrate me because they do want to change, and they do understand that they have a confrontation with Muhammad and the Quran. And as our conversations carry on, I keep asking them, but what would you change? What is your argument with Muhammad? And they wouldn't take the argument. They wouldn't take the argument of Muhammad. And here is what is absolutely wonderful about being an atheist. <laughs> it's to say, I can take the argument to him. I don't give two hoots about this seventh century figure. Maybe as a historical figure. You know what? I'm not going to draw any cartoons of him. I can't draw. I'm not going to make any more films. I can't find anybody who's going to make a film about him. But philosophically, I would like to take the argument to him. And there are five things that I would say we need to talk about with Muhammad and the Quran and the Medina Muslims. And I think we can win that argument. When I say we, I mean those of us who are, at least who subscribe to classical liberalism, life, liberty. In the United States, we say the pursuit of happiness. Everywhere else, they say equality, tolerance. Um, but if, 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 you, if you hold these ideals to be dear to you, then I think you have a stronger argument than Mohammed. Because number one, there is a five things that I say to my fellow modifying Muslims. The attitude that Muslims have toward the holy book, the Quran, and the Prophet Muhammad is too absolute. And that is an attitude that can and should be changed. That is not an attitude that is an effect of the work of Medina Muslims or the people we've come to call radical. It is an effect of all Muslims. My mother, who couldn't read or write, instilled in me that everything in the Quran, she had no idea what was in it, everything in the Quran is absolutely right. And so did my father, who couldn't read and write and had no excuse whatsoever to say that only one book contained all the knowledge that humanity needed. My mother and my father and my teachers and all my Muslim peers all agree that the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran are a sort of, I mean, I keep in our time comparing to a GPS, that you can follow the man and the book the way you follow the GPS. And that is the straight path, the narrow path, and that is going to take you somewhere. And that somewhere, that is that second component. And as a Muslim, if you pray five times a day, and you've been taught to pray five times a day, you say it five times a day. That is life after death. In Islam, I know all religions have a life after death, but in Islam, there is so much emphasis that is put on life after death. It is ridiculous. It renders the religion a cult of death. Young people would rather earn more points for their life after death than they would at Procter & Gamble. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who say, yeah, but why would I work for Procter & Gamble? Fair enough. <laughs> but would you have your children invest 
in life after death instead of life before death, regardless of whatever religion you are. So you have to think about that, and I think Muslims have to be made conscious of that. That is a point of reform. And then, of course, there's Sharia law. There's this moral, legal, every, it's, it's a law, an ancient law, divine law, that tells you everything you should do and everything you must do. How could you possibly? It is hostile to innovation. It says explicitly, no innovation in Islam. So how can your children, regardless of however well off they are when, in whichever family they are, how can they compete with Silicon Valley? How can they com compete with anybody in the West? Because if all these children are being pushed to innovate and be creative, the Montessoris and the child-centered, and let's bring up all the creativity, how can, you com how can your children compete with that if they've been told, no, all you have to do is obey, submit, obey, submit, obey, submit, learn by rote, and info anything you need is only in the Quran. I call it the one man, one book syndrome. And then number four, there's a concept less well-known to non-Muslims called commanding rights and forbidding wrong. And it's a concept that ensures that all believers make sure that insiders stay inside. So my sister would say to me, my half-sister, it's now 1 p.m., you haven't prayed yet. And she would say at 1.05, you haven't prayed yet. And she would say again at 110, you haven't prayed yet. And I would say to her, flicker up. <laughs> Get out of here. And that, that creates inside the family a tension where you don't trust your siblings. So leave alone what happens outside of the house and what the state imposes on you and what the rest of the community imposes on you inside your family. Self-appointed individuals will impose their sense of Sharia on you. Why? Because they are going to get more points in the hereafter. And it's all tied together. And then obviously you have the concept of jihad, how to deal with non-believers. And once you've been groomed and softened and manipulated and controlled into practicing and internalizing and becoming a believer who only follows and submits, you are then told, the only form of release, really, psychologically, is to get the infidels in. And if you can't get them in, you can use violence. So you're wondering about why young men who don't want to work for Procter & Gamble and who don't want to find life in Australia, however wealthy and however peaceful and however wonderful it is, who find it extremely boring, it's just offer them jihad. It is this endless sense of thrill. It's better than drugs. It's better than alcohol. It's better than anything else. You go to Iraq and Syria, and you get young children, girls who are abducted, the Yazidis and the Christians and the Muslims who wouldn't believe in exactly the same way that the ISIS people want them to believe. And there you have your four wives, and you can die on the battlefield. And then you have to look forward to this pornographic heaven. So in short, these are the five things. The attitude toward Muhammad and the, uh, and the Quran, that's one. Two, the attitude to life after death. Three, 
Sharia law, four, commanding right and forbidding wrong, five, jihad. These are the five key, and I would say it's the spinal cord of Islam that needs to change, that needs to reform. That is the conversation that I have with my uh, fellow Muslims who are, I'm not a Muslim anymore, but they are, and they, uh, they are the ones who say to me, well, something needs to change, but they can't pinpoint it. And I find it easy to pinpoint that. Maybe they have other points. You don't, it doesn't have to be five. It could be six, it could be three, it could be 10. But these five, in my view, are key. Now, when I get to the end of the book, I have to ask myself, what is in it for the West, for liberal societies, the United States of America, all the various European countries with large Muslim populations, Australia, uh, what is in it for us to want to reform Islam, to promote the change in these five key factors? I think it's pretty obvious. It's our national security. We want to minimize the number of people that Medina Muslims can influence. We want to promote the idea that the freedoms, the institutions, the ideas that have made all of these countries peaceful and prosperous can also be extended voluntarily to the rest of the world. And we cannot possibly limit our tools of dealing with jihad only on the military battlefield and surveillance, because that's what we're doing now. So from a national security perspective, there is a rightly understood self-interest for us to invest in the modifying Muslims and encourage them along the path of Islam. But the job of reforming Islam, that is a job for Muslims. We can encourage, we can push, and it's rightly self-understood. The book was, I would say, well-received. It made it to the New York Times bestseller list. You are here to talk about it. But it's relatively new, and I fully understand that if those five reforms are, in fact, implemented, um, I shall not be around to see it. So it is, it's, it's a work of love, and it's a work of, I, I, I sincerely believe in it, and I think it can happen.